You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to this Easter edition of Radiotherapy on 3RRR. I'm Dr Doolittle, and let me tell you, we've got a packed studio this morning. There are more people than chairs and microphones, so we're doing a little bit of musical microphones slash chairs. <laughs> it's a logistical nightmare. To begin with, we have a special guest, Dr Linda Worrell-Carter. Linda is the founder of Her Heart, a not-for-profit organisation aimed at reducing heart disease in women. And Linda's going to tell us all about it, how she got interested in it, what it does, what you can do to improve your heart health. We've also got Dr Training Wheels back. Well, uh, to be more exact, future Dr. Training Wheels, because Dr. Training Wheels is a first-year medical student at Melbourne Uni. So exciting. Just takes us back to the good old days. That's why we've got Training Wheels here, to remind us of the good old days, Dr. Capri. Um, And uh, Training Wheels, what are you going to talk about? Oh, I know, antibiotic resistance is in your sight. You are going to tell us what it's about and what to do. And as I just mentioned, Capri's here, Dr. Capri. I had to bribe her to come this morning. She's come all the way from, what's it called, road night. It's about a million miles away. It's like a beach somewhere. It's far too cold to be at a beach. You're better off in Melbourne. And Capri is our resident general practitioner educator with a special interest in women's and family's health. Um, I say that so professionally. Capri is going to tell us a little bit about how doctors can improve their communication through plain speaking. Also here, oh my goodness, this is good. the introduction could take the whole hour. Also here is Master Doyle. He's our health journalist. He used to be our health journalist student, but now he's our health journalist. He graduated. Doyle is in to help with interviewing Linda, and he's prepared that segment for us. We've also got Kent doing all the buttons, but there's no microphone for Kent. So I can say Kent, but just basically leaned across, whispered in my ears and said, Doolittle, that's the best introduction I've ever heard. You're my favourite host of all the radiotherapy hosts. You're doing a great job. Hey, it's a complex logistical morning, gang, so sit back, relax. And let's see how this all unfolds. Let's say hello to you first, Linda, seeing you're right down on the end and you're our guest today. G'day. Yeah, good morning, everyone. Thank you very much for this opportunity to um, come and join you all. I'm really looking forward to it. Oh, it's a top effort coming in on this um, cold old Easter morning <laughs> and uh, we're looking forward to hearing about our health. Um, then I'm going to go, yeah, let's go to uh, Doyle. How are you, lad? I'm very good, thanks. Uh, I appreciate uh, in your mind that I've graduated somehow. It's Haven't like, you graduated? Um, Did I get that wrong? No, no, I no, I have indeed. So you not only have like, graduated somehow, you have graduated full stop. Yes. <laughs> yes, no, that's a good point. But in like in the uh, radiotherapy sense, I used to be the health uh, reporter in the sense just for you guys. I was the student. And now I'm, well, it's, I'm the master, I suppose. I'm Master Doyle. I'm you are, you're Master Doyle. The, I'm trying to think of, Become you know, a full-fledged professional. I'm yeah. trying to think of the metaphor of the flower opening and blossoming and Ooh. now, I don't know what, but, you know, something, everyone's yeah. grown. You don't like that one? No. Uh, no, okay. You, no. Yeah. no, it just sounds creepy and weird, doesn't yeah, it? A little bit. Okay, I'm backing off from that. Disassociate myself from that metaphor. Fair call. Fair call. I disassociate yourself from anything I say. It's good. I've gone from... Uh, just reporting on what other people do to uh, actually conducting entire interviews. I feel like one of you now, Doolittle. It's like. Don't get ahead of yourself, mate. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> You're interrupting my We love you. We love you. I was you. just so excited. Hey, oh. what about you, Training Wheels? You're at the start of your course. He's at the end of your course. Do you just look across with envy? Absolutely, yeah, totally. And, uh, you know, uh, did I say this last time, but Capri and I were at uni together and we had this guy who went through uni with us and for the first two years, every time you saw him, he said, how's the course going so far? 
bar. <laughs> I, I cracked his joke. So it, it was just, it freaked us out. You know, by the end of the second year, people had sort of, you know, you know, if you saw this guy coming, I won't mention his name, you saw him coming, you go, oh, he's going to ask me, and you come up and you say, g'day, Steve, how's the course going so far? It was never going that well. But uh, is it going well for you so far, training? Training wheels, TW, I'm calling you TW. TW is great. Yeah, it's, it's going well. I'm really... <laughs> relying pretty heavily on this week off to catch up. Oh, that's disgusting. A week <laughs> off already. You've been at uni about no, four weeks. It's been eight. It's been eight. Oh. It, it has students, come quickly. Students, long hair, oh. drugs, alcohol, <laughs> pubs. <laughs> Closed a lot of them and put them out in the coal mines like the good old days. You're, You're making me feel nostalgic too. But yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm speechless, actually. This is all going way too quickly for me. I don't know who to listen to. It's all happening too. Well, too many, people. Focus, too many people in the room. You're our first topic, so you've oh, got to focus. Okay. All right, I'll Maybe focus. we should go straight into the first topic then and get all serious yeah, and, um, and stern. Yeah, so you were going to talk stern. something about communication and, um, and lay, lay language. Yeah, so I was um, reading in the medical press uh, an article written by a cardiologist, actually, who was um, talking about um, the idea of dropping jargon, medical jargon, that doctors should um, st- stick to simple language um, and... For the most part, I agreed with what she was saying in as much as particularly when you're talking to patients, I think it's really important to speak in simple terms and make it accessible for them so that, um, you know, obviously uh, it's important that they um, get the message and understand what the doctors are saying. But she actually took it a little bit further and was talking about... um, for example, in a, with a specialist writing a, a letter to a, a GP or any other professional, that they they simplify the language as well and didn't use any medical terminology. And I actually thought that was not necessarily a good idea. I mean, you know, jargon, certainly medical um, specialist language or medical language um, if, you, if your audience is the patient, then yes, clearly I think it should be limited and you should not use jargon. And certainly in the medical degree now, there's a huge emphasis uh, with communication skills and avoiding jargon. I mean, we almost have a chewed on that, don't we, uh, training wheels? So we, we actually try and make sure that it's, you know, upcoming doctors avoid doing that with patients. But I think when it comes to you, with other professionals, um, I think that's a valid place to use it because, <clears throat> well... What do you think, Doodle? Would you write a letter to a GP that um, sort of avoided using medical terminology? Is that well, useful? This is something that is actually close to my heart. Um, we did some, myself and Mel practice from this radio show, not on this week, but we did some research on this about oh, probably 10 years ago now. We did a project where we were trying to... You know, um, hospitals, just to give a bit of background, hospitals are, you know, obviously privacy is changing dramatically and people have access to everything. And so we've been encouraging people for about two decades now to whatever you write, assume that it's going to be read by the patient. Now, in particular, early on, we had to get rid of a lot of judgmental language that was in hospital files. People wrote judgmental things and it was rife and it was clearly wrong. And, you know, there was a whole lot of reasons they did it. Often it just stress breaking or whatever shorthand. Sometimes they were just very judgmental people themselves, the clinicians writing in the notes. And so that had to get drummed out. And then we sort of also wanted to move it on to drumming out a lot of the um, terminology. Now, some things you can't, because obviously if you're going to write that someone's got pneumonia, you're not going to write to your colleague and say, thank you for sending along um, Dr Doolittle, who's got um, bilateral um, um, fluid in his lung that's due to a bug um, that is causing him to cough. You're going to write, he's got um, pneumonia. 
And so, you know, so a lot of the medical language we use is just shorthand. It's just summaries. That's all, you know, all pneumonia is. It's a summary for um, 200 other words. But I think it's more than that. I think the word um, relays a whole lot of information to the other professional. One word not only tells you what's going on, but it gives you an idea of what the management's going to be, the prognosis for that patient. It's actually, it's, it is a summary, but it's a whole page worth of information if you're relating a word to another professional who understands exactly what that term means. You're giving them a whole lot of information. And well, I reckon, though, the thing that annoys people is not words that summarise stuff, like pneumonia is a summary for, you know, infiltrations in the lung with yada, 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 but stuff where they feel they're being excluded in some way, where the language is there to exclude them from information, Can especially I just say if it's judgmental point, doyle. Having grown up with two doctors for parents... Uh, Having exclusionary language is pretty much every night at the dinner table for me. So I definitely agree that it's important to... Like, imagine you you come home, you've uh, had a tough day at school and you want to talk about it with your parents, but all they're interested in is myocardial lymphomas or whatever. No, it's there's just, no... Yeah, it's like, they're it's, terrible it's not, You were talking about how they... <laughs> they, get their, they get their tumours and their hearts and stuff all the time. But I say, look, oh, you know... I think that I have the same issue with... So, look, I, I, I'm completely for lay language, but I think there's got to be limits. Yeah, and if you think about any discipline, any other trade, any other profession, they have their own language, and it's language that is between two peers, and they know exactly what they mean by that term. I have no... I. I would hate to think that I would have to write a letter to a consultant or in, in return that would have, to, you know, you, a paragraph of information where you could use three words. Um, it depends. Obviously, when you're translating that to the patient, it's very important to use basic terminology and simple language. But I think to erode what is a professional um, language because you think a patient might read the letter, I just think that's taking it Well, I'll tell far. you how we got around it in the study. So what in the study we did, we um, took all our letters that we were sending to general practitioners who had been assessed by our psychiatry team and the patients had to consent to be in the project, obviously, and was published, etc. And um, half the patients were automatically sent a copy of the letter themselves and half the patients weren't, as is normal. The GP gets the letter and um, it just goes on from there. And then down the track, we measured how many, how much the patients had gone along with the treatment plan. And of course, as you can imagine, the patients who got the letter themselves had got done so much more of the treatment of the ones mm. who'd gone to the GP. Because mm. one, the, GP, they might, the patient might have forgotten to go to the GP for a month. The GP might have looked at it and thought, I don't like this, don't like that, filtered it out, or, the, or you know, all sorts of factors could have come into it. And so we had to get used to writing. All of our letters had to be written in a way that the patients could read. Mm. So anything that was a definition, we just would have highlighted and there was, and we'd, and it was a little thing down the bottom saying, feel free to go and Google this term if you don't know. But then all the other language had to be in lay terms so instead of writing all the usual professionally sort of stuff it was written you know um in very lay language and the clinicians got used to it really quick mm. and they quite liked it and the patients loved it the feedback from the patients was strong in the article you read capri what was the argument for dropping the, the jargon between professionals as they saying because it may be that the, the patients will see the okay. letter and therefore not understand what's going on and that um you know there was one suggestion that you write both terms you do the description in lay terms and then in brackets 
brackets, you put like orthopnea, you know, yeah, breathlessness okay. when lying flat. I mean, that takes a lot of time. Well, I but mean, there's maybe programs that will do it now anyway. Saying, maybe with technology, yeah. it will be you put the word in, it'll spit out both the, mm. the simple patient version and, and yeah, the, and you can print it out. You know, that's I mean, that, already that there. Would, yes. I read my books on my iPad. And if there's any word I don't understand, which is quite common because of my limited vocabulary in education, I can touch on it and my iPad will tell me what the word means. Mm. But, but taking it one step further, does that mean that when, pe- when we get radiology reports, they all need to be written in normal speak, when you get pathology reports, when you get micro reports? I mean, where, where does it stop? How, how far do you have to take this basic language? I hear thing? what you're saying, sister. Yeah. It's going to be troublesome. But, you know, but as you say, technology yeah. may be the answer. Maybe it'll be possible what just to What do you think down the end there, Linda? Because you have worked in hospitals for a long time and you are in the business, so we'll get onto it next segment when we talk about her health, but you're in the business of trying to um, raise awareness about problems. Do you have on your website lots of um, technical terms or is it all lay language? No, at the moment we're looking at the lay language. I, I think it's, it is a dilemma and I can absolutely agree with you, um, Capri, that... Um, you know, you could have what seemingly a very short letter made extremely long and complicated and perhaps lose the essence of what you're actually wanting to say. Um, but I, I too, I've got um, students who I've supervised in the US and I can hear what um, Doolittle's saying as well in terms of that, um, the ability to be able to translate something that is complex quite simply. Um, perhaps... You're right. As as we go along with technology, we've got that ability. And um, look, my 75-year-old mum's now on an iPad and she's sort of been mm. able to, uh, you know, um, get used to some of the uh, the simpler techniques and the, um, the way, <coughs> excuse me, the... Um, <coughs> yeah, no, I know what you're saying. You know, the only thing that what you say reminds me of, though, you know, I do, you know, one of the whole things about um, healthcare, and you get this in other areas too in the courts, it's the mystique. You know, a lot of what we do is incredibly plain, but it's the mystique of going along to the doctors. You know, you're going along to a fancy place with degrees on the wall and it's a respected person or in Dr. Capri's case, not mine. But, um, <laughs> and so, you know, but the, and all those words they don't understand, yeah. TW, you quite, you know, and I think of it the way I say the courts are the same, you know, you go to the court yes. and the judge wears a wig for God's sakes. And, you know, he wears a pink robe. He looks like, oh, I don't know, is it Santa Claus? Well, I haven't been to court now for about six months <laughs> since my last hearing. But, um, but you know, they, they've, they've got the same thing going and they've got this whole mystique. And I do wonder sometimes how much the medical lay language and the mystique adds to the so-called placebo effect, the whole mystique of getting people better and, and stuff. But I think I'm talking about when I'm speaking to you as a, another clinician or doctor, yeah. as distinct from the way I speak to my patients, I can assure you it's very different. Right. And I think I'd, I, I'd like to think that general practitioners are maybe better at it. I certainly know specialists. Maybe maybe it's because they're with each other more often in a hospital setting or they tend to converse in in that language more, more of the day, whereas I spend more of my day speaking plain speak. Mm. But I would hate to think that I have to do that when I'm speaking to a colleague or when I'm writing a letter to a colleague or I just think that's taking it a little bit too far. Okay. I think, I think oh, there's sorry, also um, uh, an Last element to, to Doyle. Uh, alongside um, like uh, making knowledge a bit less complicated um, and uh, adding to the mystique, as you say, Doolittle, uh, I think uh, it also adds a bit of inaccessibility mm. for um, the, the layman. Like, in the articles that, that I've written on health, a lot of them relate to things like, uh, well, you know, beetroot juice or other things that help with your diet. Well, they rarely ever go into the, 
slightly more meaty sort of stuff where there's also health knowledge, but because of all the terms, uh, people feel like it will take them a bit longer to understand. So I think there's also a value in decrypting a bit of medical knowledge uh, there so the masses understand it better and better understand what it is that uh, doctors do. Good point. And an excellent point to end on. And talking of masses, we need masses of people to sign up to our Facebook page. Radiotherapy <laughs> on Triple R. We've got about a thousand, but we, we want more. Um, we put all sorts of stuff on it. So jump on. If you're on um, Facebook, jump on and find Radiotherapy on Triple R and press like. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. Joining me in the studio, I'm Dr. Doolittle. We've got Dr. Capri, we've got Dr. Training Wheels, and we've got Master Doyle, our journalism student, who has brought along a special guest today who he is about to formally introduce, even though we've introduced her already. Over to you, Doyle. Thank you, Doolittle. Well, our guest today is Dr. Linda Worrell Carter, who has a PhD in nursing and is one of Australia's leading authorities on cardiovascular health in women. After 15 years researching women and heart disease, she left St. Vincent's and ACU to set up Her Heart, a non-profit organisation to help increase women's awareness around cardiovascular disease. Dr. Warrell Carter, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm wondering if you can tell me uh, why exactly you left research in favour of promoting awareness around women's heart health. Yes, very good question. So um, it does seem to be that it gener- it's generated a lot of interest, which is good for her heart. Um, I guess one of the uh, disappointments that I had with um, having done 15 years of research was that um, not as many women as I would have liked was actually were actually aware that this is, was their biggest killer. So uh, the, some of the research that we've done during that time... Um, highlighted that women actually thought they were more likely to die of breast cancer but the statistics are that one in eight will die of breast cancer whereas one in three will actually die of heart disease so you know when I looked again and did a few calculations and we worked out that one woman every hour dies in Australia and that's one in three around the world it's not particularly um, specific to Australia you know the statistics are just shocking and I think that I was probably thinking about what I'm going to do for the next 20 years. I'm going to be working till I'm 70. And I thought, well, I'll have a career change and really get it out in, in the general community. And the way to do that was um, probably not through writing the research articles and doing more research. That's interesting, you know, because so many people are, have moved more into commu- you know, health communication for, away from the research, especially in a country like Australia. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, th- I think it, you know, it's a fascinating move. So tell us about Her Heart. What, what exactly yeah. is Her Heart? Okay. So Her Heart is a um, not-for-profit and we actually um, got DGR status, which is, you know, the ability to for? be able What's to that? D- direct gift recipient. It's it's actually for you to be able to have it as a tax incentive so ah. that people can donate mm. and they can actually get, um, you know... Oh, fantastic. I'll, I'll, I'll get some details so, on how I apply for that for myself afterwards. Okay. Anyway, go on. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, and actually it usually takes up to about a year and we got that within three months and we've got some very good lawyers helping us who are doing it pro bono. So... Um, we have um, set up Her Heart as a charity and um, we are looking at... Um, 
establishing some good campaigns, some good um, interaction with the community and um, leveraging, obviously, off, off the research that I've done over the past 15 years and getting um, some good opportunities to speak in the community. So, so it's an awareness second. program, a bit like Beyond Blue for Mental Health. It's an Absolutely. awareness program raising heart yeah. health awareness amongst women, women. in particular or yes. people in general in Australia, all over yes. Australia or just Victoria? Well, in actual fact, um, within the first six months, we had over a 1,000 people a month getting onto the website. Yep. And within six months, we um, had had over 75 different countries. So it actually took us by surprise, the fact that it went global pretty yep. quickly um, and that's because it's a global issue so I know that um, 46% are coming from I mean Google Analytics is a wonderful thing we can see where people are coming from um, and they're coming from around the world 46% from the US Canada and actually we're getting a significant number of men coming to the website which is great now whether they're coming on to look for their uh, their mothers or their, their wives or their sisters who might have heart disease or actually just think that it's an interesting looking website is is something we'll be pursuing but um yeah linda i was interesting about interested in the statistics you gave about the the awareness for um, breast cancer versus heart disease in women what do you attribute that to and what can you learn from clearly that campaign is going gangbusters because everyone seems to be on board um what can you learn from there what what they've managed to achieve um and how can you translate that into what you're trying to do that's a good question i think that um you know the um the journey that they have been on has been um very solid from the beginning they've looked at um uh, creating awareness within the community from the perspective of um, generating a lot of interest, doing things differently, doing a lot of the partnerships. I mean, we all know about the water bottles with the pink top of it. So obviously there's some things that I don't want to be emulating. I think we need to do things very differently. Um, talking about that, it's interesting. We're being sent things from around the world now to um, me personally about different ways of donating, different ways of being able to create interest. Because I actually think... Um, it's there's a lot of people asking for funds whether it's you know the breast cancer group um or another charity so to me it can be a cluttered space and it's about how are we different i guess i do think we're different because we are the biggest killer so do you you need a celebrity do you need you know a famous woman who's had a heart attack at the age of 40 or something yeah i mean we will be going through some of those i guess standard where we do get people to work with us um and i have um got a number of people lined up and i won't announce them because we have approached some of them but not all of them um but i think it's really important to look at getting um, different types of people um, supporting the cause and um, different partnerships and different groups that are aligned with heart health. Now, you know, Jamie Oliver's a wonderful example that what he's just managed to do in the UK with the sugar tax. Um, he's always saying it's about what women put in their shopping trolleys. And to be honest, I, I think he's right. You know, we are now the fattest nation behind the UK, so the obesity epidemic. But we'll you know, try and beat them soon. Because we're well, competitive Australians, <laughs> if nothing else, we're competitive. It's an yeah. Olympic year. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing, we don't want to be um, 
We do need to think about that, though, because it's, um, you know, it's not a bad news story. You know, it's not like cancer where, you know, you can be struck down or if you've got a history, you can be aware of it. It's 80% preventable. It's mm. all lifestyle, you know. Yes, if you've got a family history, I mean, I have. I've known for 15 years about this, so I do something about it. But it's not a bad news story, and mm. I keep saying that. Apart from women potentially not knowing that this is their greatest killer, are there other sort of issues related to heart health in women specifically that her health is trying to address? Um, for, example, was, for example, I was, for example, I was of the, I, from my understanding, yes. symptoms of things like heart disease can be yes. quite different in women than in yeah, men. And yeah. is that something that you yeah. sort of try to raise awareness about as yeah. well? Yes. Yeah. So there's four different groups that, um, or four different areas that I talk about in terms of why women need to know they're at risk. Um, the first thing is that they need to think about um, knowing, you know, if they've got a family history, as I mentioned, I have. Actually, I've got a shocking family history, but I've known about that for 15 years and I've taken measures to, um, to put things in place. But I think the other thing is that um, from the research I've done personally and uh, my team over the years is that um, women do have um, different symptoms and um, it is problematic in that they um, are sometimes not as aware of them themselves but I think also some of the health professionals that they've gone to haven't been aware so I've had one woman tell me she went to her GP you know three times and so tell us what the symptoms are you're keeping okay. your senses <laughs> 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 everyone's so, out there like me on the edge of the six what are they I might have them okay. well the symptoms are that you don't get the typical Hollywood heart attack which right. is what men get gripping so you don't your chest left-sided right, pain left into your jaw etc etc yeah, et right. so the pain can sometimes go up to the jaw um, women often get pain through to their shoulder blades. Um, they can feel very hot and clammy. And often they've said to us that they have felt unwell, often the weeks leading up to it. You know, whether that's been um, palpitations, where the heart's been racing, um, they felt very sweaty, cold and clammy. Sometimes there is a little bit of um, indigestion-type pain where it's, it's in the chest. Uh, but... Overall, these symptoms don't necessarily scream out that they're having a heart attack. Right. And, and I think it's about knowing the steps. So, you know, if they've got a family history, if they're carrying a lot of weight and they're putting the heart under a bit of pressure and they perhaps know they've got high blood pressure as well, they've got diabetes in the family. So all of these create a picture that maybe they need to be thinking it's not indigestion. Is it, can I just check, um, is there any screening you recommend? You know, like, for example, you know, to go back to the breast um, uh, cancer example, you know, we recommend women over 50 begin having mammography for screening. Do you have screening for heart yeah. disease um, recommended for general practitioners? Yeah, well, I would say that I get a heart health check every year. And I would say, just like women go and have mammograms or pap smears or whatever, they need to be going to their GP and asking for a heart health check. From what age? I think, well, I would have said <laughs> from... Don't feel no, free no, to no. say there's no clear research I'd like yet. To, yes, I'd like to say that certainly when you're in your 40s, 50s, you need to be doing that. But Earlier interestingly if you've got a enough now, um, women in, the biggest increase we're seeing is age 20 to 40 in heart disease. Training wheels so, just skipped a beat. <laughs> Ironically. So that's a concern, and that's why we're now on Instagram and a few other things, because that's the age group. 
so that we need to be looking at the prevention. I was interested in, sorry, um, Doyle. Doyle, uh, I'm going to jump in here. Um, Just, I was interested in the atypical type symptoms. Um, In my experience, women often also um, get have anxiety or are anxious, and that actually can bring on. The, epi- the, um, the acute episode and they're not recognising that because they're getting these symptoms, atypical symptoms, when they're anxious and, in fact, that without having that exertional component that men that is typical with um, heart attacks where you've, you, know, you mow the lawn and then you suddenly clutch your chest, whereas in women often it can just be an anxiety-provoking episode that can um, bring that on. Yes, and, and I agree, and I think that's where sometimes there's that level of complexity but what we say is if, you know, don't delay, because that's the other issue that women often delay, whereas men don't delay. They'll realise what it, what it is um, and call for an ambulance. Well, women. I think that men delay, but women delay more. Because we've had an awareness program for men too. I mean, yes. the biggest problem is people don't go to the hospital. They get the pain. One, of my, one person I know who was a doctor had chest pain, chest pain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> whilst physically exerting himself <laughs> with every risk factor under the sun at the age of about 60, um, who's changing a tyre on a car and really? changed the tyre and continued driving. Mm. You know, I mean, it's amazing how yes. people are in denial, but I think okay. it's much harder for women because yes. of those atypical symptoms, as you said. I'm wondering, uh, Dr. Worrell Carter, uh, if uh, we still need more research in certain areas when it comes to heart disease, uh, specifically uh, women's heart health, I suppose, because um, my reference here is a report released in 2014 by the Connor Centre for Women's Health in Boston, and it found that only one-third of cardiovascular clinical trial subjects are female. So do you think it's reasonable to say that we might still need some more heart research with equal emphasis on both genders, given that traditionally hasn't been there? Mm. Yes, I agree. Like, um, so... In the US, we've known for, you know, 50 years that the statistics of, uh, and the representation of women has been poor. That's absolutely um, correct. And um, there's been significant inroads to trying to rectify that. I do think um, it's been something that um, hasn't been done intentionally. I think it's a bit like with the breast cancer. We didn't think that um, men had breast cancer and now we're finding Mm. through the awareness for women that men are actually um, at risk and there's a significant number. So I think, yes, I I agree with that report. We do need to significantly increase the um, numbers of women. But the research that we've got already shows very clearly that um, the statistics are poor, even on the small Mm. representation. So, to be honest, I don't see it as a priority, and that's why I left the job that I was doing, because I actually thought that what we do need is for women to be aware. Mm. So many women have said to me, I had absolutely no idea this was our biggest killer no idea it was not on my radar and to think that it is something that is 80 percent preventable and i had no idea is just outrageous it really is amazing Mm. but you know what i mean you're being nice and polite but medicine has a long and strong history of being chauvinistic misogynistic and focused on men you know all of the big stuff that you know it's only been in the last 20 or 30 years that um the situation's improving and it's still got a long way to go so uh you know it's it's one of the you know the more shameful parts of the way medicine operates it it, traditionally everything is focused on on men then all the big programs are so you know it's it's hats off for you know that's probably why the breast cancer awareness does so well because you know women have 
the breast so that uh, it can't be sort of taken over by the the, the other gender. So, um, yeah, yep. that's no, probably right. interesting. I'm also interested, Dr. Royal Carter, we were talking about how uh, the 20 to 40 age group is the one uh, where the risk is increasing at the highest rate, I think you said. Yes, yes. Um, do you find um, there are some unique challenges to engaging that group as opposed to uh, women in the age group above? Because, as you say, it's a much more a social media generation. The priorities are a bit different. Yes. Yes, and that's something that we're looking very carefully at at the moment and getting some things in place. And we're obviously... I just mentioned we were starting with Instagram, but given that um, they're the generation... And it's interesting when you look at... Um, you know, a lot of the men are giving up smoking and the women are actually still smoking. I had a, a very good researcher working with me and who'd been to Johns Hopkins and had done um, tobacco, um, so a lot of research on um, smoking cessation. And, you know, it's the younger women that are taking up these e-cigarettes because they've often got an appetite suppressant in the actual tip. Mm. So, of course, they don't feel hungry, which is keeping them looking slim and trim. I mean, you know, the, so there's a lot of um, marketing that we have to do within that group, and we're certainly looking at how we can um, capture them as opposed to saying, you know, stopping smoking is the biggest thing that anyone can do, any man or woman, or um, because it is... It, has the most impact in a very short space of time but you know looking at our weight looking at um you know making sure we exercise you know if we can actually exercise for 30 minutes a day and you know i have to walk the talk as it were and mm -hmm. make sure that i do these things too um and get out there and actually get my heart rate up not just having a meander down the, the river at Warrandyte mm. and um, yeah I think it's it's really important to look into those places but also like you said to have streamlined targeted groups and the younger group is one specifically that we'll have to look at. Linda thanks for coming in tell us before we go how people can help her heart. Okay. Well, um, as I mentioned before, we are a registered charity, so we'd really like to um, encourage people to come to the website, which is www.herheart.org.au. Um, we have our Facebook page. We would love people to uh, join us on that. We also have Instagram and um, Twitter, but, you know... I'd like to close by saying even if one woman, if there's 11 million women in Australia, if one woman gave us a dollar, we would have $11 million. And there's an awful lot of money, an awful lot of things we could do with that money in terms of really creating awareness, you know, not just in Australia but around the world of this really deadly disease. Thank, Thank you. you so much, Linda Warrakada, the um, boss of Her Heart. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. And um, now we are going to talk a little bit about antibiotic resistance. Dr. Trainer Wills, she's eight weeks into the course. She's getting a bit of ahead of herself, folks. She's going to tell us. She's going to pass her fresh eyes over an, over an important... I was going to say fresh eyes over an old topic, but um, it's such an important topic. Let's, uh, let's have a hear of what you've got to say there, TW. It is an important topic, Doolittle. So we've been having lectures 
as we do at university. Um, and we've been, we started having lectures a couple of weeks ago on antibiotics and how they work and what you use them for and all this sort of stuff. And towards the end of the lecture series, they were talking about antibiotic resistance and how it's really bad news and there's these really bad bugs that we can't treat anymore and um, it's all doom and gloom terrible. So don't overprescribe, you know, all the stuff you hear, don't overprescribe, don't prescribe the wrong medicines, don't get antibiotics when you don't need them, finish your course, all that sort of stuff. And I'm just sort of sitting there thinking, what about agriculture? I did a bit of digging because I was frustrated, and that's really good motivation, by the way, being frustrated, you know, motivation slash procrastination tool. Um, so I, I did a bit of research, and it turns out that in 2011 in the US, 80% of antibiotics that we used were used in livestock. And of those, 72%, or maybe it was 73, I can't remember, are considered medically important antibiotics. So that means they're the same antibiotics that are used in people. So that's such a huge number being used in livestock in the agriculture industry. And it sort of made me think, well, surely this is, you know, doctors over-prescribing or prescribing the wrong staff or patients getting them when they don't need them. It sounds like it's kind of small fish. So it's only, yeah, one in... So four out of five antibiotics prescribed, therefore. That's uh, in the States, yeah. animals. It'll be similar everywhere. Why, just by, why do they give animals antibiotics in their feed? So I think it's done especially in factory farms, so in poultry and pigs especially, where they're in these really confined um, conditions and, the, and it's pretty unhygienic and pretty grotty. Um, and it's just a breeding ground for infection and most of the time the antibiotics are given prophylactically preventive yeah it's just in the food so they're not even sick mm. it's just you know we'll pump you with it so you don't get sick and in the past they were used also for um, growth promotion the mechanism isn't well understood but for a long time they worked out that giving a whole bunch of antibiotics to chickens made them grow faster and i think that's being phased out now which is a good thing but there's still obviously a massive problem with giving tons and tons of the stuff so it's mainly for preventative measures it's also given to animals that are sick and that's obviously a good reason um but i think when it's given kind of just to often tens of thousands of animals all at once just so they don't get sick in the first place seems a bit wasteful to me now do we need to address the question of why giving out lots of antibiotics is bad sure so antibiotic resistance bacteria and microbes vary like people they're all different and some of them are naturally resistant to certain antimicrobial treatments. But when we use antibiotics, we create a selective pressure for the bacteria that are resistant. So that means over time, there are less and less of the bacteria that are sensitive to the antibiotics because they're being killed off and the resistant ones survive. And over time, we run out of drugs that work and we've got these really nasty bugs that can make us really sick and we can't do anything about them anymore. Whenever I go to a conference now where they talk about the future of medicine and stuff like that, you know, the big, where they, the big issues come up, you know, one of the biggest threats now is that we have, you know, we used to, I forget the numbers, but it was, you know, just go with me on this, but we used to come up with around about 10 to 20 new antibiotics a year mm. and now we come up with about one new one every couple of years and people are really seriously scared that we're going to go back in the next few decades to, the to pre like the pre Yeah, era. that's what they yeah, keep saying. And we'll go back to, you know, people dying from just common infections that we, our generation and the generations before us, because I just realised we're from different generations, we'll go back to a period, you know, this scary, scary period. Um, 
you know, people have got a lot of complacency about the ability of science to cure things. And, and it's not surprising, you know, look at HIV, you know, HIV, which is a virus, of course, so not for antibiotics, but for our antiviral drugs. You know, we went through 10 years of being scared and then really the HIV researchers have got on top of it and done wonderful jobs and it's breakthrough after breakthrough. And I think everyone's got the same view with antibiotics. Everyone thinks, ah, it's going to be breakthrough. They're just talking nonsense, those are. They're, they're just wiry warts. They're pessimists. I will just add that overprescribing is a problem. Overprescribing in, in humans is a problem. We know that in countries with higher sales of penicillin-type antibiotics, like Spain and Portugal, where they're actually available over the counter, there are much higher rates of penicillin-resistant pneumococci, which can cause pneumonia and ear infections and meningitis and a bunch of nasty infections. So it is, I won't just say that, you know, let's just give everyone antibiotics and not worry about it. You, you, know, know, you know what is really weird about this, though? And I kid you not, you know, I did medicine... You know, you're going to be shocked when you hear this, but it was 30 years ago. And we were told exactly the same thing, exactly word for word. And we sat around. I remember we sat around saying, oh, God, those old-fashioned doctors and they're (laughs) over-prescribing those pools, those old... So irresponsible. Yes. And where? And it hasn't changed. Look, it's changed it a bit. Changed. It, has changed. it has changed. But it's still, but it's it's not still working, a problem. Obviously. Why does yes. it take so long? You're you, you're in this business. I don't. Pres- I'm a shrink. I don't get to prescribe antibiotics <laughs> except to myself. Well, the <laughs> is problem, that bad? The problem um, is why is it capri- dual? Uh, because I mean, obviously, you've got patient pressure. Patients come in expecting antibiotics, and you know. Not that I want to malign my own, but, you know, it is easier to just give the prescription than to go through the 15, 10, 15 minute dialogue about why, one, why the condition you have is antibiotics won't help with because usually it's a viral presentation um, or two why you're, why it is a problem that we just don't give it just in case. Patients think okay well I don't need it but I'm going overseas and I just want to take it with me and then they take it mm. for reasons that aren't aren't required. So there is patient pressure and it's really hard for a busy GP sometimes not to bend to that. And I, you know, I'm sure that happens and I try and resist that at all costs myself, but I, I, I know that it is there. And then there's also this, um, idea that, um, some GPs are worried just they do it just in case because you know mm. there'll be that one in a hundred case where you think well it's probably you know you don't need antibiotics and then sure enough that'll be the one who ends up with the you know the severe meningitis and you should have given them antibiotics so it's and a even bit the of one that who, as even well. the one who just comes along with the common cold or whatever they come along they want antibiotics and you say nah you've got a cold it's you know um, 99% vi- chance it's viral for one, for two. All the evidence says even if we give you antibiotics, it's not going to do much to it. And then, that you know, you only need one of those patients in your community to be sick for about three or four weeks and then someone else gives them antibiotics and they get better either by coincidence or whatever. And then they tell everyone, oh, the old, you know, Dr. Doolittle... God, he's Dr. just... He just won't do it. He just won't give out the medications. Whereas, oh, you know, Dr... Do a lot. Oh, <laughs> do a lot's fantastic. Gave me antibiotics on the spot. You know, and it ruins your practice. And, yes. and the, you know, you can't, divi- you can't divorce the fact that medicine is this business as much it's as anything. Service, it's a service, service industry. Provider, yeah. It's so hard. Yeah. I do feel like it's a little bit unfair that it's drilled into us for, you know, I'm five years off being able to prescribe anything and it's already being drilled into me, don't over-prescribe. Um, it's drilled into us and I assume, Capri, you're still, you're probably with your ongoing trainings 
still get it reiterated. But it seems like there's so little regulation in the livestock industry. I'm, I, I don't know much about it, but I, like, they're prescribing so much and so much is prophylactically. It seems like there's so much more regulation on our part than their part and it seems like it's That's unfair. wrong. But, you know, it got me... Sorry, Doyle, I could just see you leaning forward. I'll make this comment, then you lean forward. Um, it did get me thinking, though, what is the evidence base that... And I'm sure it's there, but I just wondered, what is the evidence base that giving antibiotics to livestock contributes to antibiotic resistance in humans? I assume it's all there, but do you, do you have... I didn't ask you because I thought it was too mean being an <laughs> no, eight-week question. <laughs> I was no, just sure. about to ask that. Oh, you were yeah, yeah, happy to be mean. Thanks for ambushing me, everybody. Um, no, so there isn't a lot of quantitative evidence that it can happen, but we do know that... Um, infected animals can infect humans directly through contaminated meat and waterways. Mm -hmm. So if a livestock population develops a resistant bacterial infection, we can become infected directly. Um, But the other thing is this nifty thing that bacteria can do where they can share their resistance with other species. So one bacteria, one species of bacteria or colony can develop or, you know, be selected for and it has resistance for for a particular um, antibiotic and it can transfer the genes responsible for that resistance to another species. Ah, that's interesting because that was what I was wondering about because, you know, I know a lot of, most of the infections animals get don't cross over to humans. You know, never, you know, one of the things that's always struck in my mind and it's one of my favourite things in the world is that the dog mouth is much cleaner to kiss than the human mouth. And it's one of the reasons I love dogs so much. Um, And I think this is going in a creepy direction again. Yeah, where are you going with this? Who doesn't love being licked by a dog? Come on, come on! Don't look at me. Reassured about it now. Have you considered the people that have just turned onto this radio? Who doesn't love being licked by a dog? (laughs) I know that they eat poo on the sidewalk, but still, they're so cute. Um, Anyway, that's now disgusting and creepy. Um, Doyle, did you have another question, or did I gazump your question? Uh, You did, but um, obviously, I was very interested to hear the response to it all. Um, I think you had something to say before, though, uh, Dr. Warrell Carter? Why are you so formal? We're all calling her Linda. Linda, you're call- you are so polite. Because he's a journalist. He's a journalist. Yeah, Journalists yeah, are professional. Like defending people and yeah. speaking to me again. Yeah, do it like this. Hey, g'day, Linda. You got a question? How's it going? No, my question actually was asked, um, you answered it very well, Capri, and that was about the pressure that you'd be under to actually deliver and give out. And, you know, patients are often um, sort of feeling like they haven't had a service if they don't get a script. Exactly. That, and, and you address that. They feel like yeah. they've been, yeah, un. Undermanaged, yeah. and uh, and the problem is, as um, Doodle said, is that there's bound to be another doctor who will then prescribe mm. it, and then it, that undermines the whole process of mm. trying to educate mm. the the community about why antibiotics yeah. should and shouldn't yeah. be yeah. prescribed. Well, so I think we tricky. do, though, have education yeah. programs for the you know um, agricultural industry now, though. I've seen them myself, and and you know, I've, I've read the art. There's articles in the paper about the importance of trying to you know change this practice, and because um, uh, the other thing I've read too is that a lot of the um, practices around how they feed animals and the th- um, the supplements they put in, including antibiotics, a lot of it's just based on hearsay, and the evidence base for it isn't oh, wow. that strong. That's so I understand. Yeah. Oh, my only perhaps last question quickly was whether you'd read anything about the um, the positive effects of you know acidophilus, given the I oh, know this is a bit of a side 
I think. But I, I just think from a community perspective sometimes, that, and that's a lot, often a lot of the things I get asked. What are sure. We, yeah. What are we talking about? Just clarify for yeah. me for in case I don't know what you're talking so about. So I guess the good bacteria, you know, oh, how when you're taking yes, antibiotics, yes, yes. it sort of erodes all the, the bad bacteria. Yeah, that's it's right. a bit of a side thing, but I thought... Yeah, that's right. another important thing, and it's something where um, we're learning more about all the time. I think there was a show last year. I'm not sure if it was one of yours, Doolittle, or one of the other yeah. Well, I've, we've, we've covered it lots of times, microbiome. but I reckon that the microbiome, so basically, you know, all the bacteria in your gut, that you have, at the average, every person in the world has more foreign DNA in them than their own DNA. In other words, you've got more bacteria and stuff like that than you have human cells. And uh, so, it's a, and it's been in the last decade or two, people have been calling it things like, you know, the unknown organ, the hidden organ, this incredibly important, important organ, the biome in your gut. And I think it's been one of the things that's really improved the whole antibiotic resistance story because what we know now is if you take antibiotics inappropriately, there's actually a really negative consequence. Yes. You're killing off a whole lot of healthy bacteria in your gut that then lead to a whole lot of problems. And so that's been one of the great things from a general practice exactly. point of view because now you can say to people not only these antibiotics aren't going to work but they're not free of side effects they're going to change your biome you're going to kill off all the good bacteria in your gut and then you're going to have to eat yogurt for the next month to make it up and i've just looked up at the clock and we've only got a minute to go and einstein and go go getting ready to walk on the moon oh, i wish we had <laughs> played that song walking on the moon by police hey uh, it's sure time will. for the end of the show um dr linda warrell carter as i like to refer to you thank you so much <laughs> for coming on the program it's been an enormous pleasure to have you in your company Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been very entertaining as well as informative. Cheers. And you too, Doyle. Well, thank you, uh, Mr. Doolittle. Or Dr. Doolittle. As long as we're being more formal here, I suppose. Yeah, thanks. But, um, yeah, no, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for coming in all the way from road night. Hey, uh, trainer wheels, eight weeks in. You're doing all right. <laughs> Thanks, Dylan. She's slightly cocky. Oh, I wouldn't have said cocky. I would have said appropriately confident. I think oh, I'm a enough. quarter of a what's it? What's a quarter of a quarter? A sixteenth? Yeah. Nearly a sixteenth of a doctor? Nearly there you go. One yes. week off, I think. Are yeah. oh, you really? It seems too soon. It just seems too soon. It's uh, I don't know. Capri, how much of a doctor are you? <laughs> I don't done. think that's for me to answer. <laughs> Thanks for coming in, though. Yeah, no trouble. I've enjoyed it. Hey, everyone. Thanks very much for listening. Uh, we're back on next week. Don't forget our Facebook page, Radiotherapy on Triple R. Special ca- thanks to Kent, of course, and uh, special Woo! thanks, of course, to Marinara, who I forgot to thank at the start of the show, over to Einstein and Gogo, who have got um, Captain Gene Cernan, the last man to walk on the moon. You're not stupid, but intelligent, sensitive people who are learning that life and its ground rules apply directly and personally to you as well as others. Triple R grovels at your feet. And we love you. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.